You're listening to Joy Coaching America with the Joy Coach, Karen Lynn Grant, spreading upbeat, uplifting, informative messages of hope and happiness from sea to shining sea from our home in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. Welcome to Joy Coaching America. This is Karen Lynn Grant, and today, oh, I am so excited to have Pamela Romney Openshaw back with us as we discuss the founding mothers. Pamela has spent years of her life just immersing herself in knowledge and in wisdom and in studying the lives of our founding fathers. We've had a show on that. We will have another show during June on in Father's Day month, and this month, the month of May, we're talking about wonderful mothers. And today, our program with Pamela Romney Openshaw is all about the founding mothers, which all lived during the Revolutionary War period. So I can't wait to hear about which mothers we're talking about. And Pamela, let's turn the time over to you to just begin and share with us. Good morning. Well, it's a pleasure to be able to talk to you about the uh, women who helped create the United States of America. We always recognize the fact that behind every man who's accomplishing a lot, there's a woman who is supporting him. At least that's the old-fashioned way (laughs) of doing things. But during the colonial period, there were women who stood behind their husbands. They were remarkable women. We know very little about them because they didn't keep journals. Uh, Mainly we know about them from letters that they wrote to other people. Mm. And if those letters were saved, then we know more about those women. But Uh, We would like to talk as much as we know about their stories. Um, Behind every man who accomplished something stood that woman that supported him. And we can begin this by, first of all, talking about Abigail Adams. I think she has to be one of the most famous women of the Revolutionary War period because, of course, she uh, wrote extensively to her husband, John, who was gone a great deal. In fact, during the first 12 years of their marriage, he was gone six of those 12 years. He served the colonies and then later on the United States of America in Europe. And so they wrote extensive letters. She, he, disca- he described her as being spicy. I thought mm. that was a very interesting way for him to talk about her. But they, they openly discussed political ideas. Um, she ran the the home front at the time he was gone and of course took care of their children. They had five children, one of whom died at the age of 14 months. So they raised four additional children. Um, But she used to share her political ideas with him. And she's famous for having made the statement, remember the women. And she said, Mm. we have often been neglected during uh, the lawmaking process in the past. If you don't pay attention to us, we will rise up in the future and make this known to you. And we have definitely seen that that happened. But John got a lot of his ideas for what what they were going to do in terms of what he was going to try and accomplish in the country um, from Abigail. She was tuned in politically. She was a, a great intellectual. She had a really witty sense of humor. And the two of them just brought this out and it was just wonderful to see. Good team. Yeah. It's just, she was, she was definitely a part of the founding of America. She was a a profound influence and yet we don't talk about her very often. We talk about John, but we don't talk about Abigail. So she is probably one of our most favorite women to talk about in terms of our founding mothers. But there were definitely others. One that you rarely hear about was Deborah Franklin. 
who was the wife of Benjamin Franklin. Uh, we hear so much about Benjamin. And uh, yet Deborah just kind of fades into the background. I didn't even know very much about her until just recently I began doing some reading specifically about her. Um, Franklin was engaged to Deborah at the time he left to go to Europe to get, get a printing press. And he never got the printing press. He ended up staying for a couple of years, got the press eventually, and came back after he worked for it. Um, and then she had married someone else while he was gone. So they were engaged when he went? They were engaged, but that just went away. Right. Because you know, he, he never came home, <laughs> <laughs> basically. Uh, so she, uh, her first husband died, and he courted a couple of other women, and he finally ended up marrying Deborah. And she was a, a very supportive wife and a very good wife. But you get the sense about Franklin that he wasn't terribly committed to what was going on in his home life because he left and went to Europe to serve, again, the, the interests of the colonies and then the United States. And he was gone in a 17-year period of time. He was gone for 16 of those 17 years. And Deborah just stayed faithfully at she, home? She mended the printing press. She invested in real estate. Uh, the one year that he came home, he decided to remodel the house. And then he left and she was left with all the details for managing this. At one point in time, their home was stormed by people who were very upset about something that Franklin had done in Europe. And, and so she she brought in the troops and had him was stationed at the windows with guns to <laughs> defend mm. the house. Um, what a trooper. <laughs> she was really a trooper. But the interesting thing was that once he got to Europe, he was so popular there, um, so loved. Every, there, were, there were scarves and dishes and all kinds of things bearing mementos of, of Benjamin Franklin. And he, he got so sucked up into that that he rarely wrote home. And he would go sometimes a year without even writing her. And so she remained at home, the faithful wife, even though some people were saying to her, you know, your husband is never around. I think that you should get another one. <laughs> she said, no, I, I have a husband. Um, then finally she got into her sixties and her health began to fail. And she wrote him a letter one day and she said, I'm, I'm done with writing. I can no longer write to you. Our mm. daughter will have to do the writing from here mm. on. And a year and a half later she died. And then he came home mm. and he made the statement when he got home that he never realized how much he loved her until mm. he lost her. Mm. And he told the story many years later that he had had a dream that he had gone to heaven searching for Deborah so that he could ask her forgiveness. And when he had found her in this dream, he asked her to forgive him. And she said to him, uh, the equivalent of, a, of, I have given you everything I have, and that is enough. And she didn't come back to him. Yeah. And that was very painful for him. So She's one of those unknowns, again, that helped to build the country by supporting and sustaining and by keeping Franklin's business going so that he had the, you know, the money and the expertise and his, his, uh, the things that he invented came to light. And he, he's so well known and she just isn't. Uh, there's another example mm. of that and that uh, of a supportive wife. And that was Eliza Hamilton, the wife of Alexander Hamilton. So Hamilton was very well known. And we'll talk about him in a later section when we talk about uh, more about the founding fathers. But she was very supportive of him. She bore him eight children. And yet even with managing the household and taking care of those eight children, she would be his editor in, 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 
of sorts when he would write. And he was a prolific writer. He had a brilliant mind and he was just a genius when it came to finance. And he also was the secretary of the treasury under Washington in his very first administration. And so he was constantly producing these prolific works and she would stay up with him most of the night, many nights, and she would edit what he had written. Mm -hmm. And then after he had completed what he wanted, she would write it over for him. And again, she's another individual we just don't really know very much about, but look at the strength that was coming from these women standing behind their husbands supporting them in ways that the that the men would not have really been able to go forward if they didn't have the wives. This is really a foundational core that these women provided for their husbands so that they could have eagle wings and go and do the things that they were commissioned and called to do. And so we, in our modern world, we, we seem to think that women have to be doing the same things that men do. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go on through this um, radio program today. But in those days, the women had roles and the men had roles and uh, the women's role was to be supportive. And it was equally important to what the men were doing. But it was very much a silent, unseen figure in many cases. Uh Most of the time it was. And I'd like to also point out what went on during the Revolutionary War period, because we had women and children who went along as camp followers with what went on during the Revolutionary War. Another one of those examples of how women stood behind the scenes and they were supportive. So if a man had property, or even if he was a middle class man with his own trade and such, the women would often stay at home and they would manage that situation. But if these men who were going into battle were poor and they were day laborers and they didn't own the property, their their families had no way to support themselves. And so the women and the children would go along with them. And so Mm -hmm. everywhere Washington's army went, he had this group of camp followers that went with him. At one point in time in communicating to one of his generals, he said, please try to hurry along the women and the children so they don't slow us down. Mm -hmm. So while Washington was feeding all these soldiers, he was also feeding the women and the children that went along with them. But those women uh, did the the cleaning, they did the cooking, they did the mending, they did all of these things like this in order to keep that whole movement going forward. So they were darning socks and at they, nighttime around they, the campfire. And they were also working for other men. Um, and the men would pay them just, you know, pennies or whatever they had to contribute to this. But during the times when they had very little food, which was a good share of the time. So were the women doing the cooking and everything? They were doing the cooking, but sometimes they were out in the countryside scrounging to find food so that they would have something to eat and so that their children would have something to eat. So they had a, a profound experience there. And we don't know. We don't have any way of knowing how many uh, followers there were that followed Washington's army during the war, because there doesn't seem to have been any record kept on that. But the British kept track of that. And in one of the British campaigns, <clears throat> there were 5,000 women along with their children that went along with the soldiers. This is amazing. And something I never learned in my history classes, I don't know about the rest of you. I'm so grateful for your study, your research, your time, and your willingness to be here to help us celebrate the women of the Revolutionary War. And we'll be right back with more Pamela Romney Openshaw after these messages.
from sea to shining sea and beyond. You're listening to Joy Coaching America Worldwide with show host and Joy Coach, Karen Lynn Grant. This is Karen Lynn Grant with Joy Coaching America. And today, my special guest is Pamela Romney Openshaw. And I just, Pamela, I love the things that you study. This is just like, it's manna to my soul. I loved history growing up in high school and in college. I loved hearing the the stories, but in school, we didn't hear these details. This is amazing. And I don't remember, other than Betsy Ross, ever really talking about the women that were behind the scenes in the Revolutionary War. So this this program is wonderful, and it is being aired during Mother's Day season, the month of May 2021, as we celebrate these women, the support they were to their husbands, and boy, Mrs. Generals behind the scenes, right? <laughs> right? So anyway, we're back to you, Pamela, and I would love to have you just pick up right where you left off. One of the ways that uh, women were very supportive during the Revolutionary War was they acted as activists. And we we don't hear this very often, again, because we don't have written records of, of much of what the women during the Revolutionary War did. But um, there are some fascinating stories. I think my favorite story that I have ever read of what any of the women did during the Revolutionary War period comes from the story of Esther Reed, whose husband was part of the conferences that took place prior to the drafting of the Declaration of Independence. And he was also part of the Confederation Congress that ran the Articles of Confederation during the, the Revolutionary War to the period when we drafted the Constitution. Um, she was watching what had been going on in the country and how um, soldiers were doing, uh, not, not having the sufficient food and their mm-hmm. needs weren't being met. And, and that was, if you've studied the Revolutionary War, you know that the soldiers often went hungry. They fought barefoot. They, their feet bled in the snow. Their mm-hmm. clothes fell off of them. They didn't have blankets to keep them warm. And so she began a letter writing campaign. She was in Boston and she was, she was, excuse me, she was in Phil. In, in Philadelphia, and she was encouraging the women. She began encouraging the women through the newspapers to quit buying the this the baubles and the things and the fancy things and use that money and dedicate it to the soldiers. And so the movement really caught fire, and a lot of women got involved in it. And they began a door to door contribution thing, and they went all the way through the city hmm. collecting money. And even poor people were contributing just pennies if they mm-hmm. had pennies to contribute. And they ended up collecting. Uh, the equivalent of six hundred thousand dollars worth. Oh of, my gosh! And yeah, that would be in a, their money. Yeah. In their money, <laughs> yeah. which would be that's a lot of wow. money that they had to contribute. And so they were excited to be able to contribute this, and they realized how well it was working in their state. So they thought, well, they would encourage other states to do the same. And this was and in so, what state? It was in Pennsylvania. Okay. That it began. And so uh, Esther Reed began this letter writing campaign, which might have been our first direct mail kind of situation going on. And she wrote to representatives, women in other states, and encouraged them to do the same. And one of the individuals she wrote to was Martha Jefferson, the wife of Thomas Jefferson. And the letter that uh, Martha Jefferson wrote to her friends, encouraging them to participate in this, is the only written record we have of Martha Jefferson. So that's a sweet thing. But anyway, the movement began through the other states, and a great deal of money was collected. Um, and so she contacted General, you know, contributing this money, she contacted General Washington and she said, we want the money to be used to benefit 
the soldiers, but we don't want you to use it for the things that the government is responsible for giving them, like shirts and shoes and things like that. We want it to be something with more significance than that. Well, Washington apparently didn't get that part. Hmm. And so he said to her, uh, what we really need is shirts for the men. I'd like you to use this money. I'm she was very grateful for what she'd given. I want you to use this money to buy linen and make shirts for the men. And she said, no, no, that's not what we want to use this for. We collected this to be something special for the men. We know it's the responsibility of the government to give them shirts. And so Washington said, all right, then why don't you contribute that money to the national banking system and, and we'll use it in that way. And, and Esther said, no, that's, that's not what we had in mind. Now, imagine this is a woman talking to the, the general that's in charge of the entire Continental Army and she's telling him that his ideas aren't working here very well. And so she said, we, we want this to be personal. And, she, and so she made the suggestion. She said, how about if we give each one of the soldiers in the Continental Army $2? And that is our gift to them, our, our way of saying thank you. Washington was horrified at the thoughts of this. He said, no, we can't do that. Those, those men, most of them will use that money just to get drunk. And that is the opposite of what we're trying to encourage them to do. And besides that, we're having trouble paying them. So it would be difficult for us to be giving them $2 from the women. So finally came back to Washington, said to her, what I want you to do is I want you to buy linen and I want you to make shirts for the men. So she finally agreed to do that. Uh, they bought the fabric. And then sadly, after that, three weeks after that, uh, Esther Reed died. Dysentery oh. swept through her community. She fell oh. victim to it. Uh, she left a four-month nursing baby. And so the so project, she was just a young mom. She was not. She was not an older mom at all. No. And so um, Benjamin Franklin's daughter picked the movement up and they carried it through the United States and they created all these shirts. They created 2,200 shirts, but they per they found a way to personalize them. Attached to each shirt was a little note with the name of the woman who had made the shirt, where she lived, and whether she was married or unmarried. <laughs> wow. I find that so delightful that these women were willing to do that, willing to make those sacrifices. Um, that is amazing. That really is. And <laughs> and is. so this was Deborah Franklin's daughter? No, it was uh it was Esther Reed, but the project was completed by uh Benjamin Franklin's daughter. So that would be was it Deborah? Was Deborah the daughter? The no, wife? Deborah was his wife. Yes, so, so the daughter of daughter. Deborah. Yeah. Oh, so there's beautiful. another story, though, and that is Mercy Otis Warren, who was very well known at the time. So women weren't getting involved in politics very much, but there were women whose brains were so acute and they were so tuned into what was going on that they could they could really express themselves. And Mercy Otis Warren was one of those individuals that did that. So the way you publicized your views back then, of course, was to write in the newspapers or you wrote a pamphlet. You put your ideas and it was printed out in a little pamphlet and they sold like wild fire and people absolutely loved them. And so she was writing plays where she was uh, pouring out what the, the, the discrepancies that were being brought about by the, by the British governors and the horrible things that were going on in the colonies. And she was making those kinds of things known. And she became very well known to all of the Revolutionary War fathers. And um, she just, she was in there activating, making things happen. And um, if you if you start studying about the revolutionary women, mm -hmm. you will hear Mercy Otis Warren mentioned over and over again. But there were other ways, really, that women were involved. Um, 
there were women who were spies. There are several stories written of young women who uh, mounted horsebacks and rode through the enemy lines to take messages to the generals or to their brothers who could convey that information to their commanding officers. Um, there were also women who fought in the Revolutionary War. There and we, we didn't have, know that. We have, <sighs> two, we have two instances of that, of women who dressed as men and stepped into the fighting lines. Do you know those names? I, you know, I don't. I, I have some vision problems, and I went back to try and mm -hmm. find those names, and I was unable to see but well enough to find that. That is interesting that they just believed so fervently. They wanted to be a part of it. Uh, one of the women... Uh, had no family. She had no siblings. Her parents were dead. She had no aunts and uncles. She was literally alone in the world. And so she said, I want to step in and be part of the army. And so she bound her chest with rags so that she could disguise her build. And she went into battle. She was wounded twice. And in the second time that she was wounded, um, she was left unconscious. And when the doctor was tending her, he discovered that she was a woman. So he nursed her back to health. And then she received a discharge from the army. Uh, she later married and she suffered health benefits from from her uh, the effects of her war battle or war wounds. So she got health benefits. She, she got she financial. suffered from that for most of the rest of her oh. life. And so her husband, after her death, was able to collect uh benefits from the Revolutionary War. And so yeah. the, the government actually paid him, like just like they paid the widow's benefits. <laughs> this was oh. the widower's benefit for him. That is amazing. And, and so, I think about my grandfather, Colonel Aaron Raleigh, who I know was in the Revolutionary War. We still have the, the beautiful uh, what are they? The wards that they wore on their shoulders. What are those uh -huh. called? Yeah, yeah the epaulets on the yes. shoulders. Yes. And yeah. it's just, it's so exciting to actually hear these stories and connect them to our ancestors. And we know that uh, we have family, we have ancestors, we have genealogies that go back through the Revolutionary War, through the Civil War, through all of these, the great founding of this great country. And it's so exciting and motivating to feel this fervor of patriotism, be enlivened by you, Pamela. We'll be right back after this station break with more from Pamela Romney Openshaw. Welcome to the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Welcome back to Joy Coaching America, raising the world's vibration to love, joy, and peace, one happy listener at a time. Pamela, this is delightful. I am just so enjoying these stories, your research, your study of the founding mothers, that we get to inspire and uplift and encourage women who may feel like you are behind the scenes sometimes. But what a phenomenal force for good women are in the lives of men. And so excited to be hearing these stories. We want to mention your website, and I'd like you to go ahead and do that. And 
we want to also encourage you to go look at the products, the books that Pamela has written, Promises of the Constitution. And here's the website, Pam. Uh, thank you. The, the website is promisesoftheconstitution.com. Um, Promises of the Constitution is written in short one and a half page segments, and there is also a workbook and a study guide that go with it for in-depth information uh, if you're teaching children. <clears throat> a lot of senior citizens like to have that in-depth information as well. <clears throat> so I would encourage you to go there. And I also have several DVDs. Uh, we're going to be talking in this segment about some of the stories that are found on the DVD entitled America's Founders, uh, where I discuss founders that are uh, known and unknown, uh, men and women. I include some children, uh, marvelous stories that we can use to teach our children more about the founding of America. And that's that's very important for us to be teaching our children all these things. It is. I love that you are teaching women and husbands and fathers and mothers to inspire our children with a love of America, with a love of patriotism. I think that that's beautiful. And this book is amazing because it's in those short segments so that even if you only have five to 10 minutes a day, you can sit down and read one of those stories and all this beautiful information that Pam has gathered for us and put together. And what I love is that you were, um, this wasn't something that you did early in your early mothering years. This is something that the Lord put in you as a fire in your heart to, to study the Constitution. And it just excites me that we have purposes, callings, and missions that we know not of, and that we can continuously be inspired all the days of our lives to learn, grow, and continue to have our missions unfolded to us. Please tell us more about these, these women. Well, thank you very much for mentioning that. Bob and I had returned from a year and a half in Italy at the time we decided to study the Constitution. And so that's not something that I, I'd studied the Founding Fathers when I was young. I'd love their stories, but I had never really studied the Constitution and the, and the drafting of our country. So it was a real delight to be able to do that. But we want to talk today about women who experienced persecution as a result of uh, what was transpiring in the United States of America because the British were not happy about what was going on. So the men who drafted the Declaration of Independence were uh, persecuted. Many of them were sought out with the British trying to take them captive and take them back to England. Had those uh, individuals been taken back to England, they would have been tried there where they would have had no witnesses in their behalf. They would most assuredly have been found guilty. And the penalty for treason was that you would be hung until you were unconscious. Then you would be cut down. <sighs> you would be cut open through your middle and your insides would be taken out. And then once you were dead, you would be cut into four pieces, boiled in oil, and the oil would be poured out on the ground so there would be no trace of your physical presence. And so nobody was really looking forward to being captured for treason. And so when they couldn't take the men, they, they, uh, the British began persecuting the women. And two stories wow. dealing with that are just very powerful. One is the story of Elizabeth Annesley Lewis, whose husband, Francis Lewis, was a representative to the convention where they drafted the Declaration of Independence. They were from New York. Their home sat right at the edge of one of the waterways, and the British pulled one of their ships right up to the waterway, right, right up to close to the shore, and began shooting cannonballs at her house. And at the same oh. time, uh, uh, 
contingent of redcoats came into her home and began to destroy the house. And so Elizabeth stood there in her dining room and she watched them smash her her cab her china cabinets and destroy her china she watched them smash the mirrors she watched them take their swords and slash the fabrics in her dining area she watched them go through her entire house and decimate it and while she was standing there in her dining room the ship that was shooting the cannonballs shot a cannonball that came directly into the dining room where she was um, obviously missing her, but she stood and she watched that entire process happen. It had to have been an act of supreme courage for her to do that. Those who witnessed this said that she showed no fear, that she stood calmly through this entire process. But at the end of this process, they arrested her and they put her in jail in a stone Oh, what would you call it? A dungeon kind of thing. Hmm. She was given very little food. She had no uh, additional clothing. She didn't have a coat to protect her from the cold. She wasn't given blankets. Um, her situation was basically destitute. And she was simply held in this dungeon-like uh, environment. But one of her servants, a black man who had been the, the family servant for years, learned of her whereabouts. And he was able to sneak some food in and at least some clothing so that she could keep warm. And she wrote letters and gave them to him. He gave, he took them to her husband, who gave them to General Washington. And when Washington found out what was being done to her, he sent a letter of outrage to the British saying, either you release Mrs. Lewis from, from the dungeon that you have her in, or I will capture the wives of two of your generals, and I will do the same thing to them that you are doing to Mrs. Lewis. So they released her from prison. But at that point in time, her health had been destroyed. <sighs> She lived another four years in very poor health after that. But she, in effect, gave her life to the founding of the United States of America and to our right to declare our independence through that war. But as one additional tender little part of this story, that we can begin to see the heart of this woman and, and what a sweet woman she was. She was so grateful to this servant who had helped her that... Uh, a few years after she was released from prison, this man was dying. and He was a Roman Catholic, and he wanted a priest to administer last rites to him, but there were no priests around because of what was going on with the war and the like. So she went to the effort to track down a Catholic priest and have him brought to this servant so that he could administer the last rites before the man died. That tells me that this woman had just a lot of sweetness and tenderness inside of her, in addition to that powerful courage that made her stand up to the British, even when during this time when her house was under assault, one of the soldiers came up and ripped the silver buckles off of her shoes so that he could benefit from those. And so it, it, we just see that this woman was... Uh, she was powerful. These are the women that built America. We don't hear about them, but 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 we're just so blessed to have had them in our lives. Another story. Oh, before you go to the next story, I just want to echo. I've never heard the story before. Mm -hmm. It's not something that was in any of the history books I read. And it really hit my heart. I mean, that was amazing courage and heroism. And I just, I think about each one of us and how we can apply a story like that and ask God for the courage that we need to stand up and exercise our rights, our voice, our 
inspired truth. And I would just hope that as you've heard that story, that you will feel to pray for courage and strength for whatever America is called to go through in the forthcoming years. This was an incredible story. And she really, truly gave her life for her husband's work as well as for the country. So that is an incredible story. And for all of us. Look what she did. But we have another sweet story connected to that. And that's the story of Deborah Hart, whose husband, John, was a representative from New Jersey. And she she was very, very ill. He was being pursued by the British, but he left to come home so that he could spend time with his wife. Uh, He escaped through the back door when the British approached his home, ended up living in the fields for three weeks, returned home to find that his wife was dead and that Mm. all 13 of their children had been dispensed throughout the countryside. He died eight months later, never having found his children. This was the price that he paid and that she paid with him. These, These stories... They're amazing. And I'm so grateful that you're bringing them to life. And I'm sure when you think about all the countless people that went through this period of time, through the Revolutionary War, that the sacrifices that each one made are insurmountable. And I'm just amazed at what you have shared thus far with us today. We are wanting everybody to go to your website, promisesoftheconstitution.com and order your book, Promises of the Constitution. This is Pamela Romney Openshaw sharing her stories, her wealth of information, knowledge, education, and research with us today on this episode of Joy Coaching America. We'll be right back. To Joy Coaching America, raising the world's vibration to love, joy, and peace, one happy listener at a time. Welcome back to Joy Coaching America in this very special Mother's Day Month edition. And this radio show will be converted into a podcast. This radio show is with Pamela Romney. Openshaw. I want to make sure that you get her name, Pamela Romney Openshaw, who is the author of Promises of the Constitution with her website, promisesoftheconstitution.org. .com. .com. Make sure you do .com. We are so grateful, Pamela, for your research, and we want to encourage people to go and and look at your homeschooling materials, everything that you have created, so that mothers and grandmothers, fathers and grandfathers can be educating our children. You know, it's so important that children have these stories preserved, and so I am so looking forward to the remaining time that we have to spend together today on this special, special experience with you. So we've talked uh, in our previous sessions about women who stood behind the scenes, about women who've been activists, about women who were persecuted Mm. uh, for the things that happened to their husbands during the Revolutionary War and to their families. Uh, Today, I want to talk to you, though, about what happened um, 
politically because some of the founding mothers were very involved politically. They weren't out in the front. They weren't making themselves known. They certainly weren't running for the legislature or such things as that because women just didn't do that back in those days. But they were still very involved politically. And probably the best example of that is going to be Dolly Madison, who was the wife of our fourth president, James Madison. As we talk about the founding fathers, uh, she is, she's very prominent in the political scene. So she had the ability to bring together people that needed to talk to each other, people of disparate means hmm. uh, who weren't agreeing with each other politically, and to get them to talk to each other. And the whole as as the United States of America came into being and George Washington became the president and then additional presidents followed, they had to develop a way of being, a way of doing business, a way of conducting yourself socially uh, in in the country in order to make the country function. And so um, the president's wives would organize uh, a once a week kind of get togethers. They called them by different names. They had French names for them and American names for them, but it basically it was a get together every week. And, and um, Martha Washington did it for George. Um, Abigail Adams did it for John. When Thomas Jefferson became the president, he didn't have a wife, but his secretary of state was James Madison. And so Dolly stepped in and did a lot of the state affairs for Thomas Jefferson during the eight years that he was the president. And then, of course, James Madison became the president and Dolly became um, the society matron, really, of the United Hmm. States of America. She was establishing more than anyone what happened socially in the United States among politicians. So at her once a week get together, she would always dress beautifully. In fact, if you if you study Dolly Madison, you learn about the beautiful clothing she used to wear. But even that, she was making a, a statement about what America was, even in what she wore, because she avoided the lavishness and the jewels and the fancy velvets and the elaborate headdresses that they did in Europe. But she also avoided the home look feeling, the homemade mm-hmm. look that you wouldn't that you really wouldn't want to portray yourself as. So she had to find a whole new way of presenting a social. And she did that beautifully. Um, she is well known if you if you go to any of the national museums and and you see the the attire that the women wore during those days, it's Dolly Madison that was setting that standard. But at those tete tates that were held each week, she she knew from what James would tell her, she knew which people needed to get together and talk, and she knew that there could be more business done behind the scenes than there could be on the legislative floor, and that you could smooth the process on the legislative floor by getting people together outside of the legislative. She sounds process. like a wonderful mediator. Yeah, yes, she was, and so she she was a very appealing woman, very beautiful woman, but she had the ability to draw two people together and just suggest to them what it was that they might need to talk about, and and just kind of bring that about. And she had a slightly flirtatious way about him, about her. Certainly nothing out of the ordinary, but just a way of appealing to people. Just natural charm and rapport. And naturally, naturally, and it was beautiful. But not only did they get together did she do this in these in these tete-a-tetes that they would have each week but the women would go visiting 
And it was very much a part of the political process that one wife would convey a piece of information to the wife of another individual involved in government, and she would then convey it to her husband. And there was a lot of politics that went on with these visits. And so, the beautiful things that women can do behind <laughs> the can, scenes. We are so good at those, getting the that nuances. message across. Mm-hmm. Yes, we're so good at that. And so she was very good with that. And I'll draw a contrast with that because two presidents later, when John Quincy Adams uh, was the president, he had the same austere um, religiousness that was just kind of a little bit tight uh, that John Adams had had. Mm-hmm. Uh, they neither one of them were individuals that it inspired um, relaxation and admiration among people, and and he just had that kind of sense about him. And his his wife had been European. Her name was Louisa. And so she decided that she didn't like this process of the visiting and the sharing of the messages. And so she refused to do that. Well, the media got a hold of that and they portrayed her as being unfeeling and unsensitive. She tried to counteract that when she realized that she had made a mistake. But he suffered in his presidency because she was not able, she Mm. had chosen to, and then later on was unable to convey those political messages that needed to be conveyed. Those beautiful things that Dolly Madison was so easily able Mm. to do. Sounds like she might have been trying to set her own pattern and and goofed. And it didn't work. She was European Mm -hmm. and and people blamed her for being European and not caring about America. Mm. Being more stoic. But, you know... So we have women contributing in all these ways, but we have to remember that at the same time, these women were bearing children and they were caring for the families of America. And so the statistics for what went on in terms of health problems at that time are are stunning. For instance, one child in six in America died in either infancy or uh, early childhood mm-hmm. uh, from everything uh, from uh problems with the birth through smallpox and dysentery and typhoid and yellow fever and all of these other things that happened. But also one woman in eight in America died in childbirth. Now, that doesn't mean that out of every eight births, one woman died, but in the total process where women had, uh, many of them had eight children, 10 children, Benjamin Franklin's mother had 17 children. In that process of uh, putting that all together, one woman in eight died during that process. And we can even go to, if we're going to talk about women during the Revolutionary War period, talking not now about a founding mother, but still a woman during that period of time. I've done some reading and research on uh, midwives during that period of time. There was a midwife by the name of Martha Ballard who lived just right on the border, the southern border of Maine, who served as a midwife for 26 years. And during that 26 years, she was able to deliver over a thousand babies and never lost a baby or a mother, uh, because of her the sweet and gentle and the natural ways that she used. But when women were subjected to going into hospitals and such things as that, they hadn't developed the understanding of sanitary processes. And so the doctors weren't washing their hands and they didn't understand the communication of germs and such things as that. And so there were a lot of women who died during this process of childbirth. Um, an example of that is Thomas Jefferson. His wife, Martha, died shortly after the birth of their sixth child. Four of the six children died early. Two lived to adulthood and one of the girls died during the birth of her second child. 
child. It just yeah. happened a lot during the, just the time tragic. of Revolutionary Lots of War. heartache in those it, times. It and, and they experienced all of that pain, you know, all that pain that would come from the loss of a child. And yet they still had to pick themselves back up and they had to go forward and they had to run their homes. And, and their farms and do the hard labor of even laundry, everything that was so much more challenging without the conveniences that we have today. Most of the women had servants because most of them were upper class. And so they had the servants that could allow them to do that. But there was still a great deal involved in that process. Well, this has been a fascinating hour. It's amazing how fast the time goes. And with storytelling, with the with the facts and the research that you've done. It's just amazing and gives us so much appreciation for our great, great, great grandmothers and those women who went through so much to help make America great. Do we have time to talk a little bit just for Absolutely. A about well, I'd like to tell you just a little bit about something that Alexis de Tocqueville said in the book, Democracy in America. De Tocqueville was a French nobleman who came over to the Americas and spent nine months here assessing what the American people were like. And he went back to France and wrote four different volumes um, and proposed them under the title of Democracy in America. And he made some statements about women that were just when I read them in his book, I just, it just touched my heart in such tender ways. He stated that he believed that the, uh, the women of America were profoundly important. He said that as he visited with American women and he went all over the, the upper part of the colonies, well, the states at the time, of course, mm-hmm. we, United States of America by then. But he said he had found among the women an unspoken commitment that they all seemed to share that the important thing for them to do in the building of the country was for them to strengthen the home and strengthen the children. Because if you have strengthened the home and the children, then the next generation is going to be stable. And he said these women understood the contributions they could make, and they made the deliberate decision that they would focus themselves on the home. And so I've asked you if you will read one quote that he made that just rounds this topic out. Absolutely. Now, give us the name of this gentleman again. This is Alexis de Tocqueville from the book Democracy in America, and he is concluding the volume with these statements on women. Although the women of the United States are confined with the narrow circle of domestic life, I have no more, nowhere seen women occupying a loftier position. And if I were asked to what the singular prosperity and growing strength of that people ought mainly to be attributed, I should reply to the superiority of their women. This is Carolyn Grant with Pamela Romney Openshaw, Joy Coaching America.